You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to In For Lay of the Podcast. This is episode 218 called Kirsten McLennan. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that has helped thousands of women who have experienced recurrent pregnancy loss or IVF failure. The test helps detect inflammatory conditions of the uterus that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. The most common underlying condition of a positive Receptiva DX test is endometriosis with or without symptoms. If you or someone you know has struggled with IVF, Receptiva DX may give you the answer and treatment protocols that you're looking for. Talk with your doctor about Receptiva DX because the journey is so worth it. Plus, guys, InfertileF listeners are getting $75 off the Receptiva DX test. So all you have to do is go to ReceptivaDX.com or download the app Receptiva DX. Use code InfertileAF23 and you'll get $75 off. Thanks, Receptiva DX. Hello, Infertile AF listeners. This is Blair Nelson, Ali's co-founder of Fertility Rally and the creator of Fab IVF Mama over on Instagram. I'm excited to chat with you really quickly today about our Fertility Rally event we have coming up April 29th called Fertility Rally Live. It is the sixth event that we are hosting. It is a virtual online event free to anybody that could get any sort of benefit from it. For all of you listening, we would love for you to come, share it with your friends, your family, anyone you think you could benefit from it. You can get your ticket by going to fertilityrally.com or going to the Fertility Rally Instagram. The link is in our bio there. You do not have to show up on April 29th if that date doesn't work for you. The beautiful thing about the platform we use is that anybody that claims a free ticket prior to the event start will have access to all of our talks for 30 days, which is huge. So just a couple of highlights of the event. We have singer and songwriter Christina Perry as our keynote speaker. You might know her from the songs A Thousand Years and A Jar of Hearts. She is incredible. She has an amazing story and gets into all the details as well as provide inspiration for anybody listening to the talk. We have a expert physician panel moderated by another infertility warrior. And we have several breakout sessions covering things like platelet-rich plasma treatment, like healing after loss, mental health, Eastern and Western medicine combined, and so much more. We also have an exciting afternoon reset to just get your mind right when you're going through hard times with a soul cycle instructor. And then of course, in true rally style, we end it with a happy hour. So again, you can snag your ticket over on our Instagram at Fertility Rally or FertilityRally.com. Enjoy this episode. Okay, guys, today I'm talking to Kirsten. She's the author of a book called This is Infertility that talks about her six-year IVF and surrogacy journey. She's going to talk about being in Australia, in Canada, in the U.S., and then having her son, Spencer. So without further ado, this is Kirsten's Infertility Story.
right. Hello, Kirsten. How are you? Thank you so much for doing this today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I'm excited to talk about your book, which you emailed me about and everything that you've been through on your family building journey. But as always, let's start at the beginning, which is, did you always want to have kids? Yes. Yes, definitely. Okay. So tell me about growing up. What did you imagine like that your family was going to look like one day? Yes. Different to how it um, turned out, obviously, but um, I always imagined that we would fall pregnant easily, that we would have two children most likely a boy and a girl, Mm -hmm. and that by my mid-30s, I'd be married with two children. That's my pitch in it. Right. So tell me about meeting your husband, Ryan. When did you guys meet? So we met um, actually the night of my 28th birthday. So he he came to my birthday drinks with a mutual friend. So I hadn't met him before. Mm -hmm. And we started talking and um, we you know, hit it off right away. And at my birthday drinks, he told me that he had the same birthday. Okay. Which I did not believe at first. So he said, happy birthday. It's my birthday as well, by the way. So uh, we have the same birthday, different years, but okay. both have the same birthday, the 6th of October. So oh wow, yeah. So that's how we met and started dating and obviously everything went really well. And then, you know, we moved in together uh, within the year and then um, another six months or so after that, we're engaged and then married. And then it was probably about a year after we're married that we decided to try for a family. Okay. So you got, were you guys in Australia at the time? I know that your story kind of spans Australia, the US and Canada. So tell me about the chronology of that. Where were you guys at when you first started, you know, trying to have a baby? Yes. So in Melbourne, Australia. And okay. We were trying for about nine months and I think like many women, I just assumed that we would fall pregnant straight away. So at around the nine month mark, I started to feel really confused and frustrated. I just didn't know what was happening. And so we went and saw a doctor just to run some of the standard tests. So to check my hormone levels and to check my equality and count and everything came back normal. Um, and so then we continued trying and then about the year mark, um, still not being pregnant and being really confused and frustrated at this point, we, um, tried Clomid. So the medication, um, to help you ovulate just to make sure that I was ovulating regularly. So we did Clomid for four months and still no pregnancy. Um, and then we moved on to IUI and we did that for Mm -hmm. four months. This is all in Melbourne in Australia. And so after four months of IUI not working, we saw a IVF doctor who recommended we try IVF Mm -hmm. and that's when we started our IVF journey. Okay. So tell me about, I know obviously you can't generalize Australia and the attitude towards assisted reproductive technology as a whole, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. every person is different, every clinic is different, but culturally what, what is it, how is it? Australia? Is it kind of, do people talk about it? Is it widely accepted? Did you have a lot of people that, you know, were talking about this, what was going on with you guys and how is it, I guess, compared to the States and Canada where you have lived during all this? So it is very common um, in Australia and have many um, friends and uh, work colleagues and relatives who have done IVF. I think Mm -hmm. the difference I noticed when we did IVF in the US um, later on in our journey when we did surrogacy is 
uh, I feel like the US is just a, a little bit ahead um, of Australia. So in terms of the technology and the customer service and, um, you know, some of the treatments that you offer. And um, the other difference I would say is more to the surrogacy side, but surrogacy in Australia is not very common. So commercial surrogacy is banned. Um, altruistic surrogacy is legal, but not in all Australian states. And of the 90, I think 92% of surrogacies, surrogacy pregnancies are actually done overseas. So only 8% are done in Australia. It's a very long and convoluted process actually in Australia. So a lot of couples um, or a lot of people decide to go overseas for surrogacy. In terms of the stigma around fertility or the, the myths, I think it's the same as the US. So in Australia, you know, the number of times I heard, you know, I think you just need to relax or mm. stop thinking about it, or, you know, you just need to go out for a night drinking or just have a holiday. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that that's very common in America and other parts of the world as well. So those misconceptions, um, you know, unfortunately are still, you know, still around, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how were you and Ryan doing after, you know, the failed flies and the Clomid and all that stuff is not working and now you're going to embark on IVF journey said, were you guys pretty much on the same page about it? Were you thinking the same things? Was there any drama behind the scenes or, you know, disagreements? I think you probably know this because I know you listen to the podcast, but I've been really open about how it was very hard on my marriage and my relationship. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, it's, I think it's pretty common for that to happen. It, it almost seems like it either pulls people apart or really brings them together. And we unfortunately were in the camp where we were like, are we going to make it? So how was it for you guys? Look, at the start, it was um, it was fine because I think we're really hopeful. So we were then convinced that IVF was the magic solution and that we would do a transfer and we'd be pregnant. So, you know, we went into it um, sort of hopeful and excited and thought, well, we'll do, you know, this cycle for, you know, four, six weeks and then um, we'll be pregnant and we'll have our baby. So that was kind of the mindset that we went in with. And, you know, I remember feeling very, you know, devastated and confused when the first transfer didn't work because I just thought it was a sure thing. Mm -hmm. I think I, at the time, you know, wasn't as knowledgeable about IVF and didn't realise that actually it can take couples several cycles Mm -hmm. before pregnant. Um, And also, you know, the issue that I have, which um, is a thin endometrium lining, I didn't know about that early on in our journey. And so we had quite a few failed and cancelled IVF cycles until we sort of worked out what was what was happening. And so I didn't see any reason why it shouldn't work within the first cycle or two. So mm-hmm. um, <laughs> okay. So tell me about what was happening. You know, did you you it wasn't you weren't getting pregnant or did you get pregnant and experience loss for the um, first yes. couple of rounds? Both, both. So okay. the first cycle um failed and then the second cycle actually had what's known as a pregnancy of an unknown location. So the embryo had implanted somewhere in my body, but it wasn't in the uterus and it wasn't in the fallopian tube. So it wasn't an atopic pregnancy. Yeah. It was not viable pregnancy and it was dangerous if it continued. So I had to, in the end, have methotrexate, which is Mm -hmm. a chemotherapy agent to end the pregnancy. Then on the next transfer, um, it was cancelled because my lining just wasn't thick enough. And this is when the 
the issue first started to appear. So in Australia, the lining needs to be six millimetres or more to do a transfer. And mm-hmm. I know that in the US and, and other parts of the world, it's eight millimetres or more. Mm-hmm. Um, but mine was on transfers that went ahead, mine was always in the fives and on transfers that were cancelled, it was in the fours. Mm-hmm. And so I remember we had done, you know, all the, the medication, the treatments, weeks and weeks and weeks. And they, you know, at the end of it, the doctor was like, well, this is just not increasing. Like we have to cancel the cycle. Your lining's too thin. And I was like, what's the lining? Like no one had mentioned it or talked about it before. So interesting and not uncommon. Yeah. Not uncommon. And so I didn't realize that the endometrium lining was so important for Mm -hmm. falling pregnant and staying pregnant. Um, And so that cycle was cancelled. I actually think we had maybe two cycles in a row that were cancelled. And then we did another cycle and it was, um, you know, it failed and the lining was thin again. I think it was late fives. And, you know, the, the doctor at the time, she was very casual about it. So she just sort of suggested that, you know, pregnancies on thin linings happen and it wasn't such a big deal. But on the side, I went away and I researched it myself, mm-hmm. um, as you do. and As so many of us do. So you... many of us do. Yes. And I learnt that actually the lining, you know, is so important and that, you know, a healthy lining is is closer to sort of 10 millimetres, not, not in the fives, and that anything under um, six or anything really under seven is considered thin and that the success rate is low and the miscarriage rate is high. So with all that information, we actually changed specialists Mm. and we went to a doctor who focuses more on implantation issues. And at that first appointment, he suggested surrogacy at that very first appointment. Wow. He, you know, did a bunch of tests. He did um, a biopsy of my lining and, and he tracked it for a few months with ultrasounds and he, you know, he agreed that it was just very low and, you know, I tried everything that was available to increase that and nothing was working. And so he suggested surrogacy, but at the time we just weren't mentally ready for surrogacy. Right. So that's like a big pivot, obviously, major yeah. pivot. What did you, when he said that, what was your immediate first thought? No, 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 no. I just felt very overwhelmed. I'd never met anyone that had done surrogacy before. I'd never met a surrogate before. And it just, it felt too overwhelming. And at the appointment, my husband like joking, like, you know, sort of laughed and said, oh, no, I don't think we're we're not there ready for that yet. Like, well, I don't think we're there yet. Like uh-huh. kind of ridiculous suggestion. And mm-hmm. so he accepted our decision, the fertility doctor, and said, okay, well, we'll, we'll try, you know, to get the lining up. We'll do everything we can and we can go ahead with another transfer. And so we did. We went ahead with another transfer. And my lining did get the highest it had ever been. So it was in the sixes at this stage. It's still low. Mm-hmm. It's been mm-hmm. too low for the US. But um, mm-hmm. we went ahead. And, I mean, the other point I'll make is that we were transferring in PGS embryos as well every time. So, you know, pre-genetically screened embryos. So the embryos right were coming back genetically normal. Okay. So you weren't having a problem, Kirsten, making, you know, healthy embryos. It was just the staying, getting pregnant, staying pregnant, the lining, though that was your main issue. Exactly. And so on that particular cycle, we did fall pregnant um, Mm -hmm. on that transfer. And, um, you know, we went in at seven weeks and, you know, devastatingly the baby's heartbeat was too slow and the baby was measuring too small and, you know, we were told that we would, um, you know, that the pregnancy wasn't viable and that we're going to miscarry. And I had a full-up scan a couple of days 
later and by that point the heartbeat had stopped Uh, I'm so sorry that's just awful it's the worst it's the worst it's the worst and um yeah I mean it's awful awful experience um which so many women couples go through this episode is brought to you by Vegamore I'm always trying to do right by my body so when it comes to my hair and scalp health finding a product that actually works and is made with clean ingredients always seems like a trade-off but with Vegamore I get products that are made with clean ingredients and give me visibly healthy hair and scalp. With Vegamore, I am able to have noticeably thicker, fuller, shinier, longer hair, all without the harsh ingredients. Every cute pink bottle of Vegamore products are 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Okay, so I got my box of Vegamore products and I've been using them all for the past month. The shampoo, the conditioner, the grow hair serum, the hair foam, the eyelash serum, the eyebrow serum. It's been about a month, like I said, and my hair really does feel stronger and thicker. Everything looks better. And the shampoo in particular, I have to say, smells really good. The key is consistency in your routine for your most beautiful, healthy looking hair. I use Vegamore Grow Hair Serum daily and my hair and scalp are feeling better than ever. Here's another cool thing. Vegamore has these great value kits like the Grow Essentials Kit, where you get to try more than one amazing product at a time at great savings. So when you sign up for a monthly subscription, you save more and you never run low on the products that you need. And fun fact, guys, Vegamore sells one bottle of the Grow Hair Serum every 15 seconds on their website. That's how good this stuff is. So here is the deal, my beautiful listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off your first order by going to vegamore.com slash infertileaf and using code infertileaf at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertileaf, code infertileaf to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertileaf, code infertileaf. Thanks, Vegamore. And mm-hmm. so after the miscarriage, we thought maybe we should do surrogacy after all. Maybe we need to be listening to the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, we actually started surrogacy in Canada. Okay. So how did you get from Australia to Canada? Was that like a work mm-hmm. thing or was it because of your fertility journey? Or um, Yes. Yeah, so our doctor, um, fertility doctor, suggested Canada. Um, he'd heard a few good um, surrogacy stories out of Canada. Um, and so he recommended we go to Canada and, um, you know, connected us with a clinic and we were matched with a surrogate, um, Julie, this lovely woman who, you know, uh, was doing surrogacy for the first time. And also um, surrogacy in Canada is altruistic. So, Whereas in the US, it's um, you know you you, you uh, it's commercially pay you pay um, in Canada it's um, you pay for the out of pocket expenses and obviously mm-hmm. you know the treatments and things but um, otherwise it's altruistic and right so sorry just backtracking a little bit yeah. how long did it take you to get matched with her oh not long um, we were really lucky actually interesting it only took. Um, maybe a month or two. Was oh, wow. That's so quick. It's very quick. We're very lucky because, mm-hmm. because it's not commercial 
um, you know, it can take a while to mm-hmm. match with someone. Um, so very lucky. And uh, we actually had a really bad experience with Canada. Um, so we flew over for our first transfer and we transported our embryos from Melbourne to Canada, which is standard practice. You know, people transport eggs, embryos, sperm worldwide every week, whether they're doing surrogacy or they're changing clinics. Whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, and so we met Julie and her husband and her her sister and her brother-in-law like the night before and we all had all had dinner together and then we met at the clinic the next morning and we were sitting in the waiting room for ages absolutely ages and you know the transfer time came and went like what is happening like what is going on and you know poor Julie was busting to the bathroom with the you know the half full bladder that you usually have for a transfer and then a nurse eventually came out and said, oh, the doctor wants to see, you know, you and Ryan privately. And we went into his office and he said, you know, we went to open the container, you know, an hour ago to thaw the embryos and the container was empty. Oh, yeah. What? I know. Yes. No embryos inside. What happened? Good question. No one knows. We, we no. don't know. So the, the possibilities are that the container wasn't packed correctly in Melbourne at the IVF clinic in Melbourne. Oh my God. Um, I've never heard of this happening before. Oh, and that was the thing. Like everyone, the clinics, you know, lawyers that we spoke to after everyone said, never, never heard of this happening. There was like one case that the lawyer came across in the UK a few years before, but such a rare thing to happen but yeah in the end we don't know what happened so it, it could have been yet yeah, packed incorrectly in Melbourne something happened in transit like if it was x-ray because it was under strict instructions you're not meant to x-ray mm-hmm. the container or it was unpacked incorrectly um at the clinic in Canada although I mean I don't think that was the case because otherwise that would have just slide straight to our face if that was the case so right but we we don't know and it was just oh my god because we would it was just such a shock. So I think, you know, when, when you miscarry, like, of course, it's devastating and, and, you know, it's a bit of a shock. But this was something we'd never considered. So it hadn't even made my list of things that could potentially go wrong. Like it just right even into my So wait, head. can you tell me what did they say exactly? I'm just curious about the conversation mm-hmm. when they came in. Yes, they said the container of embryos, uh, sorry, the container is empty. We went to open the container to thaw the embryos. Uh-huh. And nothing inside there's nothing nothing oh my god I'm so sorry yeah it was just and it was like the shock was just it was just awful like I just went into this state of shock where you know it was this beautiful sunny day and I was freezing all of a sudden and oh yeah I was having a panic attack because I hadn't expected it at all and we'd flown you know from Melbourne which is a long it's a long flight from Melbourne to Canada and we'd, we'd been so hopeful because you know we thought well if the lining is the issue we've removed the infertility right was, and we've got these PGS embryos we've got a surrogate who'd had three of our own children had no issues what's it like this will work for sure we'll have a baby by Christmas it will all be will be fine so um and you know luckily we had um I think we had one back in Melbourne but you know <laughs> I was like right. Like you just never know, like how many eggs are you going to collect and how many are going to make embryos. And I was mm-hmm. like, what if this was it and we never, you know, make any more embryos? And oh, it was just awful. Oh my gosh. 
Wow. Canada experience, unfortunately. What an, yes. Mm. So then what do you do? You just leave? You're like, okay, well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the other thing. Was so oh. Family and friends and, you, you know, when things like that happen, you just want to be with loved ones. So, and mm-hmm. uh, we just, you know, got a flight back as, as quick as we could, which was really long. It went through Dallas for some reason and, mm-hmm. and it seems to take forever to get back home. And yeah, so so that was Canada. So then we moved on to the US. Okay. Yeah. So how did you guys, there's got to be kind of a grieving process, right? After that happened with the embryos and, you know, not being able to proceed and all that stuff. I mean, how did you navigate that? Mm, I was seeing a really good psychologist. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing they're called psychologists in, in the US or counselor. Um, mm-hmm. Therapist. I mean, it therapist, therapist. Yeah. A really good yeah. therapist. A really good therapist. So I saw her every week um, and, you know, she really helped and, you know, gave me a lot of the tools to work through it. And otherwise, you know, friends and family were amazing. Um, you know, Ryan and I lent on each other and helped mm-hmm. each other through it. Um, he just kind of threw himself into work because, is one of those people that if something bad happens, he just needs to be really busy. Right. Distracted. Whereas I took a week off from work and yes. binged like reality TV and the housewives and totally well, like it, all the escapism shows you could think of. So yes. I'm like you and my husband is like Ryan. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So whatever, you know, whatever helps, helps you cope. Um, mm-hmm. So, but yeah, it was, it was awful. And I, became really superstitious. I convinced myself that this was the universe's way of saying that we weren't meant to be parents. Oh that. yeah. That's, that's not uncommon. I'm glad that you said that. Cause I think that's mm. a really relatable sentiment. Mm. Cause I just thought, well, this is like, what a curveball, like someone up there is really trying to stop us from having, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kids, which isn't, you know, it wasn't, wasn't healthy um, mindset, but I couldn't help but go there. Yeah. So, that makes sense. Yeah. So the therapist helped me through, through those, um, those thoughts and, you know, sort of kept coming back to the point that, you know, your thoughts have no bearing on the outcome just because it won't work doesn't mean it won't work. That is true. We talk about that a lot. (laughs) Although I also see, I can see it from both ways. Cause I do think of, you know, having some sort of a positive attitude also affects your stress and your mental health, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that there can be an argument made for both of those things. And it just kind of depends what, you know, a certain person is going through at the time. It's, Mm -hmm. it's interesting. It's not black or white at all. Right. It's really gray, all that stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was our Canada experience. So, oh my gosh. So what, where do you go from there? Yeah. So we went to the U S so I, I did have a friend of a friend who had gone through Utah fertility center Mm -hmm. in the U S and had a really good experience. So um, we Skyped with um, Dr. Fook, who who actually wrote the introduction to, to my book. And mm-hmm. straight off the bat, we just, you know, we really connected and had a really good feeling about him because, you know, he didn't rush us on the call. He took his time. He was empathetic. He acknowledged everything that we'd been through and was like, you know, you guys have been through a lot and, you know, I'm here to help you have a baby and we'll do everything we can to help you. And it was a really nice approach because, I'd been used to um, sometimes specialists just kind of, you know, rushing you through the appointments and mm-hmm. sometimes you felt like you're just a number and yep. he really wanted to take his time to work out what was happening, but he also had agreed with our 
previous fertility doctor that the lining was the culprit. And okay. You need thick and healthy soil for a plant to grow. Interesting. Oh, I've never heard it put that way. That makes a lot of sense. So what was the plan? So we then met with a surrogacy agency called Rocky Mountain. Um, and it's a boutique um, surrogacy agency and tests the owner. Same same with Dr. Fulcock. We just had an instant connection and rapport. And she said, I've actually got two women in mind for you that I think, you know, you guys would, um, you know, be well suited. So she sent us um, two profiles and we had a Skype with our, in the end, our gestational surrogate Leah and straight away, instant rapport. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We just, we had one of those Skypes that went for, you know, over an hour and we couldn't stop talking and, you know, yeah. I was just like, this, this is the woman like she. And again, it sounds like it happened so quickly for you so in terms of matching. It was, it was really quick. It happened within That's wild. weeks. Um, yeah. The process then took um, probably, I think we met with Leah in November, it was like 2017, mm-hmm. but we didn't do our first transfer till Feb, because, which is still pretty quick. I mean, that's three months because, you know, getting the contract drawn up and Leah had to do a bunch of tests at her end and we had to transport the embryos over again, which was a very nerve-wracking experience. Okay. So you had to do a whole new retrieval and make more yeah. embryos or you said you had one left, but you didn't, you made yeah. more? We had one left, but we um, we did another retrieval just to get a few right. Transport more over. We used a different company, but it was still incredibly nerve wracking. Was there ever any recourse that you guys took with the the initial like courier or the other clinics or anything, or was it just mm-hmm. nothing came of it because you weren't really sure what happened or who to blame? Well, that's that's exactly right. So we did meet with a lawyer, and in the end, you know, she just made the point that it was really difficult to prove what happened. Yeah. And so there's nothing we could really, really do. So, um, you know, both the fertility clinics and the transport company show that they improved their processes a bit, but yeah, nothing, nothing came of it. And it was one of those things that in the end, we kind of just decided that we didn't have enough fight to pursue that. Plus also focus on building, a family, like it had to be one or the other because too much time and energy was going into working out what had happened. Absolutely. You know, it's like whatever reserves we had, we had to focus on actually, you know, falling pregnant and building a family. So totally. Plus financially too, you know, to be litigious is expensive. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. So, so then yes, moved on to the US and the first transfer failed so it was just a straight out fail um which was you know obviously upsetting but um at the same time by that point I was used to so many failed transfers although you know given that you know Leah um you know had had two boys of her own and she'd actually also been a surrogate for a couple from Spain a couple of years before so and we transferred into PGS embryo again. So, you know, we were a bit confused why it didn't work, but also know that sometimes even when everything looks perfect, things don't work. Right. And then the second transfer 
we fell pregnant and we had a scan at um, I think it was seven weeks or seven and a half weeks and everything was perfect. So heartbeat was strong. Uh-huh. It was measuring well. Leah's hormone levels were high. So the next scan was at nine weeks and it was at like 3 a.m. or something our time, mm-hmm. Melbourne time. And so given everything had gone so well with the first scan and once they say, you know, you've got a strong heartbeat, you know, the chances of miscarriage dramatically decrease. And, you know, Leah suggested that um, her husband, Josh, take some photos and video and when we wake up, um, we just give them a call. Mm -hmm. Wake up at about 6 a.m. as you do when, you know, something, you know, you're looking forward to something. And I checked my phone and there were no messages from Leah. And the moment I saw that there's no messages, I just had that awful feeling. That's yes. Like, the heart sinking, gut wrenching, like exactly. you feel like you're going to barf. Like right. Exactly. Exactly. Aww. So Ron was asleep and I walked over to his side of the bed and on the bedside table was his phone. And I saw on his home screen, a WhatsApp message from Josh. And all I could see um, on the message was, I'm so sorry, but we've lost the baby. And then I was trying to like unlock his phone and, you know, I I managed to lock it because I didn't, you know, know the pin. I thought I didn't. And so then, you know, he's waking up. He's like, what's happening? I'm like, we've lost the baby. I can't get get into your phone. And it was was just horrible. So, and it was so sorry. So devastating for Leah because, you know, it was her first miscarriage and she just had a ton of guilt. So she felt like this poor couple have been through so much and now, you know, I've lost lost the baby. And of course, as we know, miscarriage is no one's fault. It's outside of your control. But um, you know, she definitely felt felt guilty about it, which, you know, is an awful feeling. Um yes. and, you know, we we skyped a day later because um, you know, she just needed some time to herself. And she also had to have a, a DNC procedure as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, when we start the next day, you know, she told me later, like, oh, so relieved after our call, because, you know, I was worried that you guys would be mad at me. And Aww. I was like, oh my goodness, no, like couldn't, you know, imagine anything further from the truth. Like all we wanted to do was, you know, be together in person and, you know, hug and grieve together. And, you know, we couldn't, we were in Australia they're in America. So that was right. You're like, I just want to give you a hug right now. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that Aww. was that was definitely a real challenge of international yeah. surrogacy is when something like that happens that you're so far away. Yeah. Were they able to determine what exactly went wrong? Yeah, they were. So it was a subchronic subchronic hematoma. Okay. Yep. So which cut off like with the placenta. So the mm. supply from the baby and you know they said it's just one of those things it can't be prevented or treated so it was just bad luck so again mm-hmm. superstition started creeping in I'm like oh, of course it was one of those random mm-hmm. things that happened mm-hmm. you know it cannot be treated or prevented and yeah so that that's what happened um and then we had our next transfer our third transfer how long was- after and still with Leah? Uh, it's still with Leah. So she was determined to help us um, after the miscarriage. So, you know, just so admirable because I feel like going through something like that, so many women would want to 
walk away, fair enough, you know. Um, but she was like, no, this is not the end of your story. I'm more determined than ever to help you, right. my family. And so it was, I think, three months later mm-hmm. that we went again after she had healed mentally and physically. And then um, that was our success transfer. So a happy ending in oh, the end. We fell pregnant with Spencer and... Yes, so the third transfer, third time was the charm. So us. this is six years all in mm-hmm. yes, since yes. you guys had started to try. And tell me about the call when you found out that she was pregnant with Spencer. Did you know the gender? Um, no, we didn't know the gender till 15 weeks. So um, look, when she called, um, we were cautiously optimistic. So I wasn't mm-hmm. excited as the previous time because I thought, okay, we're pregnant again. Let's just get through the first trimester before we get too excited. So absolutely. I think that I just want to interrupt really quickly and say that Mm -hmm. that's so common for people who, you know, pregnancy after loss that Mm -hmm. you just can't relax. It's just, it robs you. Infertility robs you of the joy of a smooth pregnancy, whether it's yourself or a surrogate or, you know, whatever the case may be. But it's just, I think that's one of the things that really is painful about this whole experience is like so many people get pregnant and then they're just like elated and there's no drama. And, you know, but for all of us who've been through it, it's, you just are always, you know, you're so used to getting the bad news. You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, you can't, you just can't really relax. You know, so many people don't even want to have a baby shower or start working on the nursery. Cause you know, you're just like, it's not going to work. I know it's not going to work, you know, and that's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And we started to tell people at around 15 weeks because that's when we got the Harmony test result, mm-hmm. even though we had transferred in a PGS embryo. Mm-hmm. And even then, you know, it was sort of cautiously telling people. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say I, fe- I felt more at ease after the 20-week scan but it probably wasn't until he was born that I was like, oh, okay, now we can relax. Like, mm-hmm. now- enjoy it because totally so hard to enjoy pregnancy after going through absolutely um so but yes at 15 weeks Leah and Josh actually organized a gender reveal cake for us so we um found out we're having a boy through the cake that organized oh my gosh (laughs) and how old how old is Spencer now so he's three um but he's four in July so it's by so quickly and we actually caught up with Leah and Josh um, a few weeks ago. So now that we're over wow. in America, so um, because we've um, oh, right. kept um, in contact and, you know, I should mention we actually lived with them for five weeks. Um, so two weeks before Spence was born and three weeks um, after he was born. So we all lived together, which was just an amazing experience. Um, and then we had planned to come and visit um about a year after I was born. And then of course, COVID just ruined everything. So mm-hmm. yeah. So we just saw them a month ago and that was the first time we'd see them, had seen them, sorry, face-to-face since Spencer had been born. So oh, that must've been emotional. Amazing. It was so, and it was like no time had passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'd, we'd obviously been talking and Skyping all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it was also just so beautiful to see Spencer with them. Um, and you know, because they were meeting, you know, him and like his personality and everything for the first time. And, you know, Mm -hmm. 
just really lovely to see. So we all met up in Vegas um, for a couple of days and then we went back to um, their their home in mm-hmm. Utah and stayed there for a few mm-hmm. nights as well. So, oh, wow. That's yeah. very cool. So tell me about your book, which is called This is Infertility. Yes. When did you start working on it? Was it during your journey or did you have to wait till afterwards or what was the timeline for that? So I started working on it when Spencer was about nine months old and Mm -hmm. it was when COVID hit. So in Melbourne, in Australia, we went into some really long, strict lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And so that went for months and months and months where um, you know, you could just go to the supermarket and go have one hour of exercise a day. And so right. I had some time to to write it. So when Spencer was napping and, um, you know, on weekends and that, I started to started to write it. And, um, yeah, I don't think I would have been able to write it before he was born. I think mm-hmm. I was just processing a lot of it. And um, at around nine months felt like the right time mm-hmm. for me um, mm-hmm. to, write, to write my story then. And it was released end of last year through CNR Press, um, which is a publisher in North Carolina where we're living, which is a complete coincidence. But Oh, uh, wow. That is a coincidence. So yeah, yeah, you're living in in North Carolina now. Yes. Yes. You've been all over the place. Yes, I know. (laughs) Yes. So, um, yeah, so it's basically my, um, you know, our, sorry, our six-year IVF and surrogacy journey and um, it's my, you know, personal experience but also combined with some factual insights and research into IVF and surrogacy that I think people would find useful. And I found when we we were going through everything, there was limited support and resources available. I think a lot has changed. I think Mm -hmm. in the last five years, there is, you know, podcasts like your podcasts and there's, mm-hmm. um, you know, online magazines and there's books and there's a very strong and active um, online TTC community through Instagram. But I felt like when we were going through, through everything, there was hardly anything. Same, um, yeah. And so, you know. Yeah, that's why we started, that's why I started the podcast and Fertility Rally, our community, yes. because it was, it's what I wish I had when I was going through it. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, I yeah really just wanted to you know to help help people going through this journey help people feel less alone share some of my personal experiences and insights and also you know break some of the myths and the stigmas that mm-hmm. infertility that you know we, we touched on um, yeah so so Kirsten what were some of the surrogacy you know pieces of information that you discovered that you might not have known before mm-hmm. when you were researching the book what did what did you uncover yeah, um, I mean, through the book, I talk about um, the differences between the altruistic surrogacy versus the commercial surrogacy, so Canada versus the mm-hmm. US. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about some of the misconceptions around surrogacy, and certainly I have experienced that a little bit myself. So there is definitely a misconception that if you don't carry your child, will you will you bond? with your baby, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, like, you know, dads don't carry, <laughs> dads aren't pregnant, but they bond with their children just fine. Um, and, right. You know, um, or if you adopt a child or whatever it is, of course, you've, you know, there's a, a million ways to bond with your child. doesn't matter if you carry them or not. Um, mm-hmm. And also that the other big misconception is that the surrogate will want to keep the baby mm-hmm. and that they won't be able to um 
you know, let go of the baby though, you know, won't be able to give the baby away or something like that. Um, and, you know, straight up Leah was, you know, said to us, um, you know, that when she was a surrogate the first time for the couple from Spain, she said, you know, it was never, it was never my baby to begin with. Like I'm, you mm-hmm. know, I'm a couple and she, you know, she always said like, I'm extreme babysitting or I've got a hitchhiker on board, but um, <laughs> um, she goes, you know, the love that I feel towards the baby is the same as I do my nieces and nephews, but right. it's not my child. And she right. said, I was more upset saying goodbye to the parents than I was, was the baby. So yeah, totally. You know, um, and of course, then there's different views on Saris. If is it ethical? Is it if is it not? Which you know, I go into in the book as well because I think, like everything, that of course there are stories of it being unethical in maybe in certain countries. Um, but certainly, our experience was you know wonderful. Um, and you know, Leah often says she got just as much out of it as as we did. And you know, we've got this lifelong um, you know beautiful relationship as a result and, you know, in each other's lives forever and Spencer will definitely have, you know, a, a close relationship with Leah and her husband, Josh, and, you know, certainly nothing unethical about our situation, but, um, right. you know, go into that a little bit as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then what about if someone's listening, who's just embarking on, you know, their newly intended parents or going down the surrogacy road or not quite sure you know, if they want to do that, I know it's, it's hard to make that pivot, like we said, you know, and it's not for everybody, of course, you know, everybody needs to make their own decisions and do what's best for their own body and their own family and their, you know, their Mm -hmm. loved ones. So all stories obviously take different paths and end up differently. But if somebody does want to go through surrogacy, like you did, what would you say to them who might be listening right now? Um, Mm -hmm. Anything that you know now that you wish you knew then, or just kind of words of encouragement or advice? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the relationship with the surrogate is so important. And I think it, you know, it's a person that you have to trust hundred um, percent, especially if you're doing it internationally, because it was kind of all out of our hands a little bit. And, you know, again, for us, it was such a wonderful and enriching experience. I thought going into it, or I was worried going into it that I might feel jealous of Leah and jealous of not being able to carry our baby, but I didn't have those feelings at all. Um, but I think because, you know, once she was pregnant and, and you know, we're through the first trimester, you know, firstly, I just felt so happy and relieved that we're finally having a baby. And then secondly, because Leah just made us feel so involved in everything that, you know, half the time I felt like I was pregnant anyway. Mm. So any kind of, you know, feelings that you think, you know, you're going to feel a bit, it's going to feel strange or jealous, like, you know, most of the time I don't think you you will. Um, And friends and family for us were really supportive and just so happy and excited for us. So we didn't have any, um, there's no kind of judgment or stigma or anything um, that we experienced. Um, mm-hmm. Not sure that's the case for everyone, but certainly um, for us, people were just so relieved and happy um, for us. But yeah, I think communication is is the key thing. And you know, we did a lot of Skypes, we did a lot of videos. Um, you know, every time there was a, a scanner and ultrasound, you know, that wasn't a too ongoingly an hour, we were you know skyping in and. Yeah, we felt very connected and involved in the whole experience, which I think is so important as well.
Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to get your free tickets, totally free, to Fertility Rally Live. We have Christina Perry as our keynote speaker. We've got a doctor's panel, nine incredible breakout sessions, an afternoon reset, a happy hour, and tons of giveaways. So even if you can't come on April 29th, you can still reserve your ticket and you have 30 days to watch everything. So make sure you get your tickets. It's at the link in bio on my Instagram at Inferlife Stories and at Fertility Rally's Instagram. And we hope to see you guys there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.